Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 14. For some weeks now, we've been looking at the Gospel of John, and today we're going to look at one verse, which we've already considered, and that's going to take us on a trip to another of the so-called books of the Bible. It's actually an epistle of Paul, and we're going to consider something that's suggested in this passage about the Holy Spirit in John 14, and it's elaborated on in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's read verses 16 and 17, and then we're going to go and look at verse 27 of John chapter 14. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible, and hope you follow in whatever version of the Bible you have in hand. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And this emphasizes the fact that Holy Spirit is God on a par with the Father and the Son. And Holy Spirit indwells us. He lives in us. What a miracle to consider that God has chosen us in which to dwell. We need to remember that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we should make the best home for the Holy Spirit we possibly can by obeying Him and following Him. Now look at verse 26 and 27. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So not only does the Holy Spirit indwell us, we've learned, but also he instructs us. Isn't it wonderful to know that the one who wrote the book through various agents who were submitted to him, different writers as it were, isn't it wonderful to know that to know that that same Holy Spirit, God, teaches us what He wrote. That's wonderful to consider. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. We spent quite a bit of time last week considering what that means. And then the first part of the next sentence, let not your heart be troubled. This is a reiteration of what Jesus says at the outset of this passage in chapter 1. He says it again. Nor let it be fearful. We didn't spend any time that I recall on it. doesn't mean we didn't talk about it briefly, but I want to concentrate on that with you today. In the 1990s, Sam Keen wrote a book entitled Fire in the Belly. His audience was a male audience, but it would be appropriate for males and females for sure. And his emphasis was to encourage the reader to rekindle a passion 
and the perseverance, which probably had waned, if not had been lost by them, to achieve something greater than himself or herself. And one of his emphases to ensure that that mission was accomplished was to refuse the fear of failure. Timothy, Paul's first lieutenant, is described by Paul as being one of a kind among all those whom Paul personally discipled. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this about Timothy, I have no one else like him. What a high commendation coming especially from Apostle Paul about this young man, Timothy. By the time Paul wrote the two letters to Timothy, his protege, Timothy had become full of fear. The reason we know that is because of what we're going to read in just a moment in full. He says, do not be afraid. A big question comes to my mind, and I've had a lot of time to ponder this. Perhaps you know those epistles well. The big question is, what was he really afraid of? There are more than just a few hints in both letters that would indicate that he was full of fear. And consequently, the fire in his soul had begun to wane. And Paul wanted to encourage him and did encourage him. I hope you will be encouraged through this letter which was written to someone 2,000 years ago basically and has relevance to all of our lives today. He was probably afraid of people. He is described as a young man. He was young by that day's standard. We don't know his exact age. We know that until a man reached the age of 40, he was still considered young. Isn't that great to think about? I'm closer to twice 40. I'm not sure what that means today. We hope that's a moving target, don't we? Of course we do. We who are older, and most of us are who are present in this meeting today. He was being intimidated by people. But I'm going to speculate, and don't count this as being the most accurate interpretation. I'm not trying to mislead anyone. I'm just reading between the lines with the help of the Holy Spirit. I think his biggest fear was the fear of failure. He had set out and had done so well. Remember the commendation that we just thought about, about him to the Philippian church, the highest commendation? And by the time he had reached this point in his ministry, he was in essence the pastor of the church at Ephesus, one of the most important churches in the early church. But he probably didn't want to go to the meetings sometime. He probably was more self-conscious than he'd ever been at any other time in his ministry because he was picked on by older people in the church. He was fearing that he had failed. Do you ever feel that in your relationship to God? Do you ever feel like you have wasted your life? Do you know that the Lord has a word for you and me if we feel that today? This young man had tried and flunked his assignment as far as he was concerned. 
He was on the brink of dropping out, perhaps. And the Apostle Paul understood that temptation and that kind of trial. Every temptation is a trial for us. I hope you know that. And what Paul was about to do in the city of Corinth when he was preaching the gospel there and meeting a lot of opposition. This is what he says that Christ said to him in the book of Acts, the 18th chapter, Christ came to him and he said, do not be afraid for I am with you and no man will harm you. And he was heartened by that. He understood what this young man was going through. It is significant for us to catch that. Here's why. Because if you have weathered storms in your walk with God, if you've lived long enough, you've had to go through a lot of storms if you love Christ and seek to follow Him. And we who are older and have been privileged to understand the importance of making Christ the central figure in our lives. And consequently, when we felt like throwing in the towel, He reinvigorated us. The flame may have grown cold on the hearth of our hearts, but all of a sudden, the Spirit of God came and encouraged us. And usually it comes to another person, by the way, who has been down the road and faced failure in his or her spiritual life. And God wants to use you and me in the lives of people, not just people who are younger than we, sometimes our peers, sometimes older, but especially with the generation or generations behind us. To give them an example of someone who did not flee, although perhaps you were tempted to flee difficulty, you stayed the course and you trusted God and the result was outstanding because you're here today. Let's now turn to the book of 2 Timothy, remembering what Jesus says at the end of verse 27 of John 14. He says, do not let your heart be fearful. We discovered last week that the verb, do not let your heart be fearful, is a verb that's used only one time in the entire New Testament. There are a few words that are such words. Most of the words are used frequently only one time. But when we get over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 to get the context of what is there in 2 Timothy chapter 1. But I want you to pay a special attention to verses 6 and 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reads this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did is I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. That would have encouraged him, wouldn't it? That there was not a day that passed, a night that passed, without the Apostle Paul thanking God 
for Timothy. That in itself would have hardened him, I'm sure. Longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Probably at the parting of the two, he recalled his tears, or maybe in conversation at some time, in one of the visits he made, he talked about how he felt inadequate for the calling that God had given him. And Paul was encouraged that he took his role so seriously. Look at verse for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. This has to be an encouragement too. He probably had wondered, is there any little bit of faith still in my heart? And what does he say? I want to, I've been reminded of your, not just faith, but your sincere faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, a godly grandmother and a godly mother when there was no male believer in the family of his origin. And I am sure, I like this, I am sure that it is in you as well. He was affirming this young man, Timothy, wasn't he? Then he goes on to say, verse 6, And for this reason I remind you, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The New International Version says, fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. I like that paraphrase of this translation. And then verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, many of the translations translate that word fear, but of power and love and discipline. I want you to consider three things that are suggested by this passage of Scripture and what we read over in the book of John already. They are the origin of that once bright fire that flamed in you. They are the reason that the fire has become but a flicker, if indeed it has, begun to die down in your walk with the Lord, and the road to reignite that flame. Let's begin with the first emphasis. The fellowship of the flame is what I'm calling this fellowship. Fan into flame. The fellowship of the flame is the Holy Spirit's creation. Notice it. Isn't that what it says? He says, I remind you in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 1 to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. The word spirit there in some translations is not capitalized. There are others which do capitalize it. My study would suggest spirit with a capital S was in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Holy Spirit was in his mind. So he is told to kindle afresh the Holy Spirit gift that is in you. Fan it into flame, the fellowship of the flame. In Paul's final statement, benediction is what it is actually, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father, and he goes on to say, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What does that suggest? What is the fellowship he's speaking of between 
us individually and the Spirit, but more importantly in some ways between us and the Holy Spirit who is the one who created the church. Do you remember what happened on Pentecost? What happened? After 120 faithful disciples of Christ had been praying for 10 days in an upper room, all of a sudden there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And then over their heads, all 120, there was as it were, flames of fire. The Holy Spirit came and He filled them. And the result was Peter went along with them to the temple area and preached what we now know as the most powerful sermon that has ever been preached. It was in the preaching of that sermon that the Holy Spirit of God communicated Himself to people to the level that 3,000 of them were born again that day, irrevocably changed by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so, as they say, the rest is history. The church of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later almost, is still alive and well. We have much room to grow individually. Hence this message that God is speaking to us. And there is a lot of disrepair in the church in America. Our church locally has much room to grow into Christ's likeness. We will never reach perfection in this life, but we are people who are the creation of the Holy Spirit of God, the fellowship. Fellowship really means partnership. It was a business term, quite frankly, that was used to describe a business that was begun. The fellowship of the flame is the church, and it is the Holy Spirit's creation. In the book of Romans chapter 8, the Bible speaks this way about Holy Spirit. We've learned that He is the Spirit of truth. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, the Bible describes Him as the Spirit of life. He's the one who gives life where there was no life. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to inquire of Christ, about Christ's teaching. Remember that? And Jesus says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it will be the Holy Spirit of God who effects that growing into a person who trusts in Christ alone for eternal life, who gives you the new life, who gives you life from above. Born again is not a literal translation of that familiar passage in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Literally means born from above. But as many as received Jesus, the Bible says, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Receiving Jesus is believing. That's what real faith is. My apologies to Missouri, but Seeing is not believing. Receiving is believing. And then John goes on to write, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of whom? Of God. And I would, in parentheses, say, of God the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit is the one who works in our lives to give us this new life. The initial response to coming to know Christ. Do you remember when you came to Christ? Do you remember 
what impact that had on your life? Probably it affected change in your life. If it didn't, you probably weren't saved, to be frankly with you. But it made you become quite talkative about your faith. You had perhaps never talked about Christ, but you came to Christ and you couldn't be quiet about Him. That was my experience as a boy. I made a beeline to my teacher, Miss Tedder. She was Mrs. Tedder, I should say, to be fair to her. She was a young lady, and I loved her. I went up to her and I said, Guess what happened to me this weekend, Miss Tedder? And she said, What, Mike? I told her I came to know Christ as my Lord. It was pretty cool. I wish I had regained and retained that kind of boldness as a little child. You know, children are not as self-conscious as we are when we grow older. You might say, when I came to know Christ, I was on fire for the Lord. Have you ever heard that saying? She's on fire for the Lord. He's on fire for the Lord. And I've heard people say, well, just give him a little time. He'll cool off. And that was always said by a voice of experience who had been on fire and now had let the flame flicker and grow very dim in that person's heart. On fire for the Lord usually is equated with somebody who's just bold for the Lord and talking about Jesus and living it out. But what we need to understand is being on fire for the Lord does not mean to be overly enthusiastic. And I'm not in any way being negative about enthusiasm for the Lord. Please don't mishear me. Sometimes we think, those of us who are not as outwardly enthusiastic think, what's wrong with me? We, that's a good thing to ask, by the way, of ourselves every once in a while. That's the Spirit of God. But I want to remind us today of what the Word of God says about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Twice in Galatians 5, the Bible says, walk in the Spirit. It never says in the Scripture to run in the Spirit. Have you noticed that? The Christian life is a walk. I remember what a very wise man said to me one time about the Christian life. He said, the problem with the Christian life is it's so daily. I identified with that. It's so daily. It can be humdrum sometimes. There are not always exciting things going on. But that's not to be a concern of ours. We just keep walking in the Spirit. And that means by the Spirit. The word which is translated in can equally be translated by our word by. Walk by the Spirit. The life that is in us is not something that is native to us. It is something which has been conferred upon us by the Holy Spirit of God. Praise God for that. To be on fire for the Lord could be represented, and I'm going to suggest it is represented, by all types of temperaments who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking of one king of Judah in particular. His name was Jotham. His story is told very briefly. He doesn't get a lot of type in our Bible. And this is what the writer of 2 Chronicles 27 says about him. 
Jotham became powerful, now listen carefully, because he kept an even course in the presence of the Lord his God. He was steady, wasn't he? An even course. He was not up and down and up and down and up and down. He reminds me of the prayer of David in Psalm 143, verse 10, where David says, Teach me, O God, to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Uh, an imperceptible inclined plane. And when you walk with the Lord in that regard, it's not like it's something that's exhilarating all the time. We have those moments that are emotionally stimulating, but sometimes it's just a gradual uphill walk. And a lot of ground can be covered like that when we walk with the Lord. Consistency in the Christian life is underrated. It is incredible how underrated it is. One of the greatest figures in the history of the church was a man named William Carey. Carey, I wish we had time to go into the accomplishments of this man. He went from being a cobbler, a shoe repairman, in London to India, and he started universities. He translated from Hindi the scripture from Hindi, the basic language of that people group we know as India, into their language. He translated the Bible into Hindi language, and that was not the only ones. Sanskrit, all kinds of languages. He was a man who was a very accomplished man in his outreach in the gospel preaching there. When he was on the way to dying, one of his nephews was conversing with him, and his nephew said, Uncle, what would you like put on your epitaph, on your tombstone? He said, this simple sentence will capture my life. I could plod. Plod? This man was incredible. But he did plod. He walked by the Spirit. And the results were, even to this day, impactful. Even to this day. So the fellowship of the flame is the Holy Spirit's creation. And it's designed for us as a church to walk in it. Let's look at the second thing that I mentioned that we would consider. The flickering of the flame is the result of neglecting the Holy Spirit. Turn now back to 1 Timothy. We're going to take a look at one part of one verse, chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. The word spiritual is not necessary here. It does not actually occur in the Greek language. It's an inter interpretation, and a quite good interpretation, I might say. Simply read, it says, do not neglect the Spirit within you. Here again, it's capital S, the Holy Spirit within you. This raises a very important question. How do we neglect the Holy Spirit? Well, we read 
from 1 Thessalonians, if you would go there with me. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul writes, this is considered by most people his first epistle, his first attempt at writing something to a church which he had been instrumental in founding and nurturing after it had been founded by the Holy Spirit, created by the Holy Spirit himself through Paul and his cohorts. Stop quenching the Spirit is actually what he was saying. If you have the New International Version, I believe that it says something like this. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. The word translated quench is a word which was used almost primarily, if not exclusively, to describe the putting out of a fire by pouring water on it. And this is what he is saying. Remember, the Holy Spirit is symbolized in fire. In Isaiah 4, 4, the Bible says, He is the Spirit of burning, which suggests He's a flame. Holy Spirit is like that. And so this raises the question, how might I, how might we quench the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another. Let's stop right there. A failure for me or you to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ is a step in the direction of putting out the Spirit's fire in our hearts, not to mention the church of Jesus Christ. It is no mistake that in Hebrews 3.13, the Bible says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. You and I need to be on the lookout every day for opportunity to encourage people. And the best means of encouragement is to use the Word of God. Romans 15.4 says that everything that was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that pers through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture. There's nothing that will encourage me or you more or anybody else than the Word of God because it in is, is in itself the creation of the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of life. It is a living and active document that God uses. So, if I refuse a ministry of encouragement, if I am so self-centered and so indifferent to other people in the body of Christ, I have the capacity to put out the Spirit's fire. May God grant this church to be an encouraging church. We need to look for opportunities, not just on Sunday, but establish some relationships with others in the body of Christ and make it your goal to encourage them with a text or with a call or a note. Amazing. In verse 11 it says, and build one another up just as you also are doing. They were already doing this. This is a church that was a baby church, but they were already building one another up. How do we build each other up? Well, Paul helps us here in the book of Ephesians where he talks about how certain people, specifically apostles and prophets and evangelists and 
teachers who are pastors or pastor teachers, they have been given to the church by Christ to do what? To equip them for what? For the building up of the body of Christ. To minister to the body of Christ. So frequently in our culture, people think of me as the minister of this church. Well, I am a minister, but you are too if you're saved. And my ministry primarily is to equip the, you by teaching the Bible, encouraging you, discipling you, so that you will be equipped to do what God has given you to do. You have a spiritual gift. You've got the Holy Spirit just as much as I do if he, you've trusted Christ to forgive you. He's there. He may be latent because you've marginalized him and never really understood who he is in terms of your part to play in the body of Christ. So we're to build one another up by ministering to others. If you don't or we don't, if we're a one-horse show, then, man, this church is in trouble big time because of the inadequacies that I have in my life, but because look at all the people that are underemployed in the church of Jesus Christ or unemployed, either or. Look at verse 12. But we request of you, brothers, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I was tempted to skip over this one because it looks so self-serving, but it's God's word, so I got to deal with it, right? And I have been blessed immensely by this church, by the way you have loved me and my family over the last 28 years. It's hard to believe. I never would have lasted here if it had not been for the love of God that has been shed abroad in my heart by the Spirit of God through you. Keep it up. We who have responsibilities like Timothy had to the church at Ephesus, like Paul had to all the churches which he was used to start, we have our own issues to deal with. We sometimes find ourselves in a position just like Timothy found himself when this was written to him, feeling like we failed and there's no hope for us being used by the Lord. But what we need to know is we need to encourage our leaders. I try to do that with the men and women who work on our staff and not being disingenuous in what I say, not making stuff up to encourage them, but really looking for those qualities that are only explainable by the Holy Spirit's work in and through their lives. Look at the last part of verse 13. Live in peace with one another. And then probably we can jump to 15 from there. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for another and for all men. This is awesome, isn't it? We are not to be retaliatory. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands. We are to refuse that, understanding that it is like Satan to do that. He accuses us day and night. I don't want to be in that camp, do you? I want to find myself in the camp of Christ who is never reluctant to confront us 
in our sin, it would be unloving if he didn't, wouldn't it? The Bible says many are the kisses, profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Jesus is the best friend we will ever have, and he loves us enough to confront us when we're wrong, and he oftentimes uses people like you or me to do that. That's very unpleasant, isn't it, to have such an assignment? But nevertheless, it is a very valuable, if not invaluable, assignment in the body of Christ. So we're to make every effort to be at peace with each other. Be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. There's a big difference, isn't there? Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Sometimes there's conflict before peace can be really made. So please understand that. And the last one, let's look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly. That means to get in their face every once in a while. If they're un, out of control, undisciplined is the word actually that's translated unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. We've already talked about encouragement. Help the weak, another kind of encouragement. But be patient with all men. This is hard. Is it hard for you? To be faithful with all people, is that tough for you like it is for me sometimes? Sometimes I just get tired of being patient. Well, interestingly enough, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is the word patient. Love, joy, peace, patience, among other things, patience. And the word that Paul uses under direction of the Holy Spirit is a compound word. And the first part of the word is the word macros or macro. We know what that means, large, long, long. And the King James gets it better than any other translation here. Long-suffering. The last part is the word thumia, which means persecution or trouble. Long-suffering, suffering. So we need to dial into the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I need some long-suffering here. And give it to me, Lord. Boy, this would make a difference, wouldn't it? In our homes, even in our church, that we were patient with each other, realizing that every one of us is still in process. He is conforming us to the image of Jesus. None of us is a perfect replica of Jesus. He's conforming us to the person of Jesus. Rejoice always. That's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. Pray without ceasing. Here again, that's impossible without the Holy Spirit, but it's very possible. I hope you are a person who is going ever closer to having a lifestyle of ceaseless praying. And the beauty of this is that even as I can, I talk to you this morning, I can pray for you. The brain that God has given us is incredible. And we have the mind of Christ in addition to the brain that we would have had if we never came to know Jesus. But it's made alive and we can look for opportunities, can't we, to pray whenever something comes to mind. And I, I just say whenever someone comes to mind. Because the body of Christ is made up of people. Some are very problematic. 
but they are in the pipeline to become more mature. And if we do what is said here, we will contribute to their maturity. But if we fail to do this, what are we doing? We're putting out the Spirit's fire, aren't we? We are quenching the Holy Spirit. If time would allow, and it doesn't, we would look in detail like we have regarding putting out the Spirit's fire at another command that Paul gives another church, the Ephesians. And he says this, stop grieving the Spirit of God. Can you grieve someone who is your enemy? Well, that's kind of a loaded question. There probably are ways you could grieve. But most times, my enemies, I don't grieve them. I make them mad. Right? But the idea of grieving someone indicates a relationship of love that exists from the side of the one who is grieved because of something that's happened at your hand. Holy Spirit is God. But Holy Spirit is tender-hearted. One of the things he says, Paul says, in the context of do not grieve the Holy Spirit, says be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Awesome. When you are tempted to let somebody have it or to hold a grudge against somebody, you need to pause. Put a lid on it. And remember how much Christ has forgiven you. I want to say, if you learn Ephesians 4.32 and you ask the Lord, help me to understand this and live by this, your day would have been made in terms of your effectiveness for God. We are called upon to be men and women who love like Christ. And Christ, as I've already mentioned, has had His love be poured out within us by the Holy Spirit so that we can be used by Him. Well, in the interest of time, and I want to mention this last aspect, we've, first of all, we have looked at the origin of the fellowship of the flame. Holy Spirit originated the church, right? Absolutely. And we've seen if the flame flickers, it's a result of neglecting the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that we need to see neglecting the Holy Spirit as an egregious sin, a terrible sin, and avoid that sin at all costs because it leads to a multitude of other expressions that are sinful. But last, I want to go back with you to 2 Timothy and let us look again at verse 6 of 2 Timothy 1. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. Self-control is a word that's used sound mind. But the point is that God, Holy Spirit, has been given to us and we need to 
kindle afresh, fan that flame. It, it may have died down to almost an imperceptible level in your life. That does not mean if you think about and believe what God says in His Word, and it's true, that in the book of John 14, we looked at it, that the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will be with us how long? Forever. That's what He says. Forever. And once He comes to indwell me, He's there forever. We can marginalize Him by quenching Him, by grieving Him. We can do that. But He's wanting us to rekindle the flame. And before I forget it, this command in verse 6, I remind you, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. That word is a present tense command. And what it simply means is keep on kindling the flame of the Holy Spirit in you. There's never a day in my life that I should not do that which is necessary to kindle that flame. The word kindle probably brings to some of your minds a device that you own. In 2007, Jeff Bezos commissioned a friend and his wife to come up with the name for this thing that we call a Kindle now. And they came up with a name, and they came up with this name Kindle because it's derived from a Norse, that would be Norwegian language word, which means candle. And a candle lights things, doesn't it? Your word is a lamp unto my feet, Psalm 119, and a light unto my path. Chuck Foss, who is here today, he may not remember this, but Chuck and I were members of the same church 40 years or more ago, and he was a border patrolman then, retired now, and he was telling me how when he would track people who were illegally trying to cross over, he would have a partner, and they would have their light at night, and when there was no full moon, there was no moon really at all, was the best time for people who were trying to cross over illegally to make it across. And he said they would pick up the tracks of such an individual and they would follow them using their lamps and because the people who were trying to go over many times they couldn't see, they would run right into a mesquite bush or a cactus and then, then they would reorient their path. They just kind of meandered around, whereas Chuck and his partner had a light to show the way. The Bible has been given to us to show us the way. And in that same text, I hope you noticed when we read from Psalm 119, the plea of the psalmist is, revive me how? How does revival occur? According to your word. We who have let the fire of the Holy Spirit grow dim on the hearth of our hearts. The best way to get reignited is to go back to the Word. Are you reading your Word with anticipation? Are you reading not just to satisfy some kind of religious requirement, but out of thirst for God and for being where God wants you to be and being who God wants you to be, so we understand to grow.
in the Lord. We must do this. This is normal Christianity, to walk moment by moment with the Lord. Paul speaks of it as being filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled means to be controlled by. Please understand that. Experiences do go with being filled with the Spirit at times, but sometimes people are filled with the Spirit and they have no emotional response because it's by faith that we're filled with the Spirit. Most of us, when we have those life-changing experiences, and there are many over the course of a long life of knowing and loving Christ, but we have those moments that are pretty remarkable emotionally. But it need not be. And the idea of being filled with the Spirit is the idea of giving Him control of my life, making Him the Lord of my life, not demanding that I have some experience or anything like that. And what's interesting, it says, you all, is what it really says, y'all, Paul was from the South, we know that, y'all keep on being filled with the Spirit. All of you. So the Spirit-filled life is for all of us. We must be filled with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants us as a church as a whole to be filled because he speaks in the plural. And so a spirit-filled church, Paul talks about it, and you read it for yourself in Ephesians 5. There are four characteristics or marks of a spirit-filled church. And we know that the whole is the sum of the parts. So it relates to all of us individually, and we all need to be in that connection and hope and pray for these things. The first thing is speaking to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We need to speak to each other. One of the surest symptoms of carnality in a life of a so-called Christian is when the person won't talk to somebody else in the church. Do you know someone you won't talk to in the church? Maybe you used to go to the 11 o'clock and now you come to the 9 o'clock because you know that person goes to the 11 o'clock service. And when you see the person on the campus, you'll just kind of hope he hasn't seen you and slinks around this way and you go your own way. That's a telltale sign that you're not filled with the Spirit. It's hard to live with Christians, isn't it? Because we expect so much of each other. We love each other, and the love that we have for each other will help us to exceed any concern about that. The second thing is making melody in your heart, making music in your heart to Jesus. Do you have a song in your heart? Do you find yourself singing when you're in the car alone? Singing to the Lord. Not singing some secular song. Some of them are okay, but they don't hold a candle to the things that we know as the hymnody and the songs that we sing. The third thing is that we're taught. Listen to the way Paul says this. Always keeping, keep on giving thanks. Always keep on giving thanks in everything. He uses three different tools to emphasize the imperative nature of a spirit-filled person or a church. We're grateful. 
And how can we be grateful for everything? There's one simple, and it's the correct answer. It's liberating to be convinced of the sovereignty of God, that nothing can happen without His permission. And that includes a whole array of things that we think are destructive. Because He causes how many things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? How many? All of them, yes. We need to believe that. And then the last thing is being submitted to one another out of the fear of Christ, reverence for Christ. That is typical of a Spirit-filled church. We need to do what Jesus says in Revelation 2 when He speaks to the Ephesian church, remember the height from which you have fallen. And then we need to repent of complacency. He says to the church of Sardis in the third chapter, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. And then also in Revelation chapter 3 and to the Laodicean church, he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. It prefaces that by saying, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. I'm at the door. I'm knocking. Are you listening? Open the door, is what he says. And I will come in. I want fellowship with you, is what Jesus says. This is the way we renew our walk with God. Remember where we were at the highest point. Can you remember that time? As far as you understand, at the highest point of your spiritual life, are you still there? And remember, we're not talking about emotional high. We're talking about consistency in your walk with God. And don't let the fire die out. When I was a boy, maybe a little more than a boy, there was a song that was very popular. It's called Pass It On. And the first two lines say, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And soon all those around it are warming up and it's glowing. It only takes one man, one woman, one church to submit to the degree that that individual or that group of people understands, submit to the authority of the Holy Spirit mediated through the Word of God to change the world. May God use us to be such people who don't live for ourselves, but live for God and His glory. Lord, we thank You for the teaching of Your Word, and we just pray You'll take what has been said, and please help us to winnow out that which is not from You, but grasp and hold tenaciously by practicing that which is true for us. Make us a Spirit-filled church, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.